0: Welcome to The Naked Monk. The Naked Monk is for those exploring life and the human condition. We are interested in ideas that were once the domain of religion or spirituality, but which today include existentialism, even atheism. Call it philosophy as a way of life. The yearning not just for what feels good, but for what is good. Hi, I'm Stephen Scatini. I was raised Catholic before I trained in depth as a Buddhist monk. Today I'm untethered, but I'm as fascinated as ever by what life can be and the creativity with which we pursue it. My guests and I are seekers of freedom, a deep life, and the wisdom of the heart. Come on in and join us. Today I'm talking to Ken McLeod, creator of pragmatic Buddhism and a distinctive voice in and beyond Buddhism. Ken was trained principally in the Karmakagyu school of the Tibetan tradition and is founder of Unfettered Mind. Ken and I both studied in Europe in the 1970s and have crisscrossed many of the same byways for 40 odd years, but only bumped into each other in 2011 at a Buddhist teachers conference in upstate New York. Since then, we meet regularly to discuss the impact Buddhism has had on our lives and teachings, and where modern society is heading. In this talk, Ken begins with a surprising statement that he quote "...never thought Buddhism would make my life better." unquote. We talk about inner demons and bliss, about truth and whether Buddhism is unique, and especially what would happen to society if its citizens were to see through their projections. Here's our conversation. I'm talking today with Ken McLeod. Ken is the founder of Unfettered Mind and is known to young Buddhists and all the Buddhists of our generation alike as somebody of great independence of mind and who has really very well bridged the traditional forms of Buddhism with a, a very modern perspective on self-development or personal training here we are ken thanks for coming on this show you're very welcome so how let me ask you first of all how would you uh, how would you describe what you what you do and what your interest is is it mind training buddhism
1: my, my interest in buddhism was never as a form of self-improvement or how to live my life better and a bit to my surprise is that that's totally why I got into Buddhism. You know, I thought I was inept socially and couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. And, and it's really made a huge difference in my life. And I went, oh, That's interesting. But my motivation, my initial motivation, which really carried right through was I never thought of Buddhism was going to make my life better uh, or that my interest in Buddhism would lead to making my life better. And uh, so I've become aware that my own approach is, is probably different from an awful lot of it people who do pursue some form of meditation practice and Buddhism, etc. Now I can say, though I didn't appreciate at the time, that I was looking for some kind of truth. And here I think we have to pay at least respect how deeply our cultural upbringings influence anything that we do. A few years ago, uh, something changed for me, and, uh, and I don't even know how to say what it was. It's like everything just fell over. And in that falling open, I realized that the motivation that I had, with which I had pursued practice was, I'm not sure what the right word is, uh, it didn't, let's say it didn't hold water. Because what I had been pursuing was some form of truth and taking into, uh, as the basis of my whole approach, uh, John sixteen thirty two. I think that's the right one, maybe it's John 8, uh, Know ye the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And it's just not true. Not for me. No amount of truth makes you free. Uh, and that was, that was very startling for me. And, and I look at such things as the four noble truths, the two truths in the Mahayama, you know, what is ultimately true and what is relatively true, etc. And realized that this whole notion of truth was actually highly problematic. This whole experience was precipitated by a line that I read in a book, which said philosophers claim to be seeking truth when actually they're seeking peace. Uh, and that's when everything just fell open or fell apart or however you want to put it. And for me, it, this was very important. One of the things that it led to almost immediately was I had no idea what to teach or I didn't even want to teach anymore. Because if you are oriented towards truth, then naturally you have something to teach because you are either... Have the truth or are getting close to the truth. But if that's, if you realize that's not what your whole endeavor is about, then it calls into question. And, I, and there's an Italian uh, politician and philosopher, Itami or something like that, who said something which I think is very important. He said, Whenever there's a notion of higher truth, there's also a shadow of violence. And this is something that has become very important to me now. Because one of the things that I see is that by holding to the idea that you have a special connection with the truth, this does provide the, the basis for hierarchy, authority, discrimination, prejudice, elitism, all, all of these things. Do you think the Buddha was proclaiming truth, or have you revise that notion of him? More than a little by some of Stephen Batchelor's thinking. His research, he questions. Whether Buddha ever referred to, to the Four Noble Truths as truths, he uh, just says he prefers to talk about them as the four tasks, or just a four, which uh, I can certainly relate to. And, uh, this was brought home to me when I was asked to uh, observe a grade six class, a middle school class in Los Angeles when I was there, in which uh, the class had been divided up in groups, and each of the groups was giving a presentation on one of the major religions of the world, you know, the Judaism. And then Hinduism and Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Taoism and so forth. And so the group that was presenting on Buddhism trotted out, of course, the Four Noble Truths, you know, life is suffering, etc. At the end of the presentation, they said, So Buddhism says life is suffering. Do you buy it? And the leader of the group, the young uh, girl, said, No. Nope. So I, I don't see those as truths. I, and when I look at Buddha's life, Now, I see it somewhat differently. One of the great contrasts for me is between what are arguably the two most powerful religious icons in the world. One, of course, is Christ on the cross. And the other is Buddha seated in meditation. Buddha sitting in meditation. You look at that icon, and it's not really about truth. It's about peace and the freedom which comes with profound peace. I have a whole theory about what the Christian icon is actually about, but I'm happy to go into it, but I'm not sure whether that comes into the, uh, the Gospels. You have the Gospel of John, which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word uh, was with God, and the Word was made, uh, became flesh. I think there's a very profound spiritual principle. I don't even want to use the word truth uh, there. Being expressed in those words... In that, when you sit quietly, and I'm sure you know this from your own practice, and you just allow things to become very peaceful, then all of your internal demons come to the surface. And you've got to deal with And those demons are not, I'm using demons metaphorically, of course, but those demons are not simply in your head. They aren't even simply in your heart. They're, they're encoded in your body, and there's a lot of evidence for this from post-traumatic uh, stress disorder and modern neurological thinking. They're, they're very, very much in our, the way our body is configured. And in order to become free of those demons, one has to experience them in their entirety, fullness, and not lose attention. And that allows them to release. Sure, this is familiar to you. That, to me, is what Christ on the cross represents, that in order to be free of the conditioning to to release it, one has to experience it in the body. And that's very graphically portrayed by the crucifixion. I've often
0: thought that the instruction to sit and quietly meditate is a form of trickery. Because the result in most cases, dare say all cases, especially at the beginning, is exactly the opposite, is that, as you say, you, you become much more aware of the turmoil. The noise becomes much louder from inside. And the first thing you have to do is learn to accept that. And that's a task which can take a lifetime. The struck that
1: you use the word trickery. Maybe I would say it's bad pedagogy. I don't think, I, 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 I certain, you know, having trained in the Tibetan tradition as you have and things like that, I don't feel there was a bait and switch or anything like that going on. I, I think many people, including people in the Tibetan tradition, have actually a pretty rudimentary understanding of what's involved in spiritual practice. But I mean, there's a, there's a Dzogchen, a very short Dzogchen text up on my site, uh, which I translated a couple of years ago, which makes it very, very clear that you're going to go through absolute turmoil when you just sit and let your mind open. Describes very, very clearly what you're going to go through. And I've, I've read accounts of that in Gen Vincantal's teachings, etc., that you know you're going to be accosted by hope and fear very, very powerfully. And you find this in many of the stories of Nurumapha, which are descriptions of meditation processes, but there's, they're presented in a language, which I think people today
0: don't know how to read. I think you're right. In the Tibetan tradition, especially, there's much
1: more forthrightness about that. Zen is pretty clear about that, too. You know, you're going you're to have stuff come up. And we're having a conversation with Raja uh, which I was very impressed by the simplicity of instruction in his particular tradition, which basically boiled down to one line. Can you experience this, whatever is actually arising in that moment? And and sometimes the answer to that is yes, and sometimes the answer is no, I can't. And what I found through my own efforts is that meditation practice is largely about building the capacity, primarily the capacity and, to a certain extent, the skills, so that you can experience whatever life throws at you, internally or externally. So now, this
0: is, I think, a good point to introduce the, um, the big question, which, which is what this and uh, several other podcasts ask, which is, does Buddhism matter? And, of course, in this context, does Buddhism matter? Can it help in terms of dealing with this, in, in terms of accepting this experience? or perhaps resolving these demons, or finding peace, or putting an end to truth.
1: So, let's just back up. There are two words. The word does, I understand. But what do you mean by Buddhism, and what do you mean by matter here?
0: By Buddhism, I mean what is spreading into the world today uh, under that name. Mindfulness, certainly, is the most widespread. Um, it seems to be quite well established in uh, in the early teachings of Buddhism. Of course, not everybody is going to go to the same depths, but the work of John Kabat-Zinn has kept it relatively uh, well connected to that place, So, so that is Buddhism. It's true that if you if you go and listen to a lecture by the Dalai Lama you're listening to Buddhism presented in a very different way that, that that you may even describe as a different name it still basically comes down to a foreign tradition well a tradition which has been foreign which is somehow seems to be taking root in the modern world and as for matter, I mean is it changing things and is it changing Well, hopefully in a positive way.
1: Is that clear enough? Well, yeah, it it clarifies things. But if that's the question, (laughs) I have to answer it. I have no idea. (laughs) You have no opinion. No, it's not that I have no opinion. I have no idea. I'm not looking for
0: a a dictionary answer here. Let's go back then to your your initial um, question about truth. Uh, it seems to me that you came to Buddhism looking for truth, and have subsequently realized that either it isn't there or it's not the point. Would that be correct? Both of the above. It, in that respect, then, with that in mind, for you personally, does Buddhism matter? Perhaps you might want to make it a comparative. Does it matter now as it once did in your life? Well,
1: I'm not sure what the question is there, because... And, and uh, my sticking point, and I'm sorry, is this? This is the way I think. Is I, I don't understand what the word matter means. Has Buddhism made a difference in my life? Yes, it has been. I've been involved in practice and study for the last 40, 43 years or so. Presumably, uh, it mattered in some way to me <laughs> uh, during that period of time. At least I would think so. So matter means to have weight. Well, yeah, but then, it, then uh, the question is simply yes, or the, the answer is simply yes. I know most expect a single word answer from you. The thing is, behind the question as you phrase it, it, it seems to me that uh, there's some uh, there's another question uh, which I'm trying to discern. Because if you say, "Does Buddhism matter?" the way that I've been asked that question depended entirely on the context. My first thought would be, no, it doesn't matter. It's just something else in life. And and that's it, you know. Uh, uh, On the other hand, then you say, well, did it matter to you? Well, obviously, it had a very significant weight in my life. And so, yes, no, whatever. So this just makes me think, no, there's another question here that you're trying to get at. I'm not quite sure
0: what it is. Um, Well, I suppose, yeah, maybe I'm being a bit disingenuous here. I feel... Uh, and many people are asking that in this time when we seem to be losing connection with our ancestral religions, whether Buddhism in particular has a role to play, does it fit into modern society in a way which the ancestral religions don't seem to be able to anymore? Is it adaptable in ways that others aren't? And by the ancestral... Case, you're meaning think, uh, Christianity and uh, Judaism primarily. In the West, I mean, yeah, Christianity, Judaism, and, and of course. Nowadays, I find that the, the conversation naturally is moving more towards modern and uh, traditional, because even in Asia now, people are coming to Buddhism in new ways as converts. Okay, well, see,
1: that, that, that helps a great deal because. As I would have said Buddhism is purely an ancestral religion, just as Hinduism and Taoism and Islam and so forth are. But it's sort of going way beyond that now, though, isn't it? Well, I think what you just said is is very relevant. That is, there's uh, modern versus traditional, and uh, and I think this is a much more fruitful way to talk about things because a modern way of life started to emerge. One can always argue about date, but we can say, say, at the end of the fifth and 16th century at least in the West one might even take it further back Uh, I'll go there in a minute but traditional religions provided a overarching worldview, they're characteristic of medieval societies, we see Catholicism in Europe in medieval Europe, Tibetan Buddhism in Tibet up until the Chinese uh, occupation in the late 50s and uh, same thing in Islam and I would say religions in those forms are characteristics of a medieval society. And as societies evolve out of that medieval stage of evolution, then things change hugely. And I, I, I think we're in the middle of that, that we've been engaged in this process for arguably 300 years or so. I would now say that we're more or less in the middle of it. And the uh, fundamentalism, for instance, is a reaction to modernism. It also is a modern phenomenon. It's, it is not an ancient phenomenon. But uh, it, it's the other pole. It's a reaction trying to hold onto a way of life in which things had were defined. The structure of life was defined externally by a commonly accepted set of beliefs, and that's why you have in certain Christian circles the wish that the Ten Commandments be enshrined in law, and you have in Islam Sharia law. These are wanting to have a, a, a religious context which defines the very structure of society, and one of the characteristics of modernism is that they're, what defines the structure of society is very, very different, and you know, it can go to lots of social contract, or, all all kinds of ideas, many of the ideas of enlightenment, things like that. And these things play themselves out in the individual and in society in in very powerful ways. I mean, the the first war of this kind was the 30 Years' War, uh, you know, which decimated Europe. It killed half the people in Germany uh, and wound up with a treaty in Ghent when the Catholics and Protestants just said, okay, we'll just allow each of us to live and we will stop making more. It took another 300 years, arguably well into the 20th century, before the really antagonism between Catholicism and, and uh, Protestants became more or less a thing of the past. The Sunnis and the Shiites haven't ever engaged that process, and it's probably going to be just as bloody. You know, Iraq was the buffer state between the, the Shiites uh, in uh, Persia, and the Sunnis in Arabia. Uh, now they don't have that, and so they're actually having to interact with each other, and it has been horribly bloody, and it's probably going to be bloody here in the future. Integration of these kinds of, at the uh, national and societal level, and then the individual, uh, it, it isn't as bloody, perhaps, which is fortunate. There's also wrenching. Uh, I, I think it's what many, many people face in their, their practice. That is, they see the value of tradition, uh, of a, a, a lineage, say, uh, of uh, respect and following the examples in the past and drawing on the wisdom of the sages uh, that has come down to us. Uh, and at the same time, there's this freedom of modern society where you, you find your path in life, not by following examples, but by individual exploration and you know the union term individuation, et cetera. And finding one's way through those two different one one looking to the past for uh, your past and the other looking to the future for your path. This is a, this is a totally non-trivial question in my mind. And I, I think the way that you introduced me, I'm very grateful for that, is that's basically I haven't thought about till this conversation, but that's basically what I've been trying to bridge. Uh, because I was fortunate, I was one of the last generation last generations to receive a traditional training from a person who had been trained and practiced in Tibet itself. And so here you had this new left radical, you know, studying at the feet of one of the most conservative people in Tibetan society. It's quite a contrast when you think of it that way. But I'm very grateful for that because through that, I really learned the great value of stability in the society uh, of, continued tradition over many, many centuries, things that we don't have any experience of anymore in the West because things are changing so fast. And at the same time, I found myself, I, I needed to do my own exploration, etc. and that caused me a tremendous amount of internal t- turmoil, balancing those, those, those two things. And, and when I worked with people, that's what I was working with all the time. You know, there is great value in the tradition. I study it absorb it, and don't forget that you are a creature of modern society. So you cannot be like this, That you can draw on it. And that's what I've been trying to do. And that's a very long answer. I hope this is helpful.
0: No, no, I think that's very helpful. I think you and I and many of our generation, I know even before I encountered Buddhism, I had the sense that my life was draped across this extraordinary watershed from the traditional, because when I was raised in the Catholic Church during the time of Vatican II, when, when these great changes came, and especially when the churches started emptying. Well, when I was a boy, people it, you had to get to church early to get in the seat, and, and while church was on, the streets were silent. It was really a different world. And now, the other day, I was, I was watching a, a movie with my wife, and it was set in a time before the internet. And we were trying to remember back to what it was like to not have smartphones, to not have access to the internet, to only have analog phones without caller ID. And it was only a very short time really for us in our lives. And yet it seems like a completely different universe. And, And I think we've been straddled between these two universes very dramatically. And there are certainly advantages to this. But there are also. It's also very difficult. It, it does require a lot of thought and adaptation and recollection. It's it's very hard sometimes to recollect that we came from a very different world because this world is very compelling. And yet there is stuff which does make that transition. And to me, and like Stephen Batchelor, I've found it subsequently not in the great immense tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, but in the very uh, sparse early teachings of the Pali Canon of of the Buddha. And this is very interesting now because um, we're talking now about, you just brought up the topic of self-reliance, which is really what the modern world is all about. And I think Buddhism has the potential and this is a question does buddhism have a particular potential to adapt to that particular need for us for self-reliance or is it that buddhism itself from the beginning stressed self-reliance in a way that most other spiritual traditions have not done
1: is that a sensible question yes it's a sensible question though i think you may be painting with overly broad strokes If you look within the Tibetan tradition, for instance, there are a lot of people who would argue that the Tibetan tradition discourages self-reliance. You rely on the tradition, you rely on uh, your guru, you rely on this, you rely on that. And this moves us very, very quickly, I think, into the territory of self-power and other power. You know, does enlightenment come through your own efforts or is it something that comes through the power of compassion of Amitabha Buddha? Uh, it's somewhat the debate between the Pure Land and the Zen schools. So that's that's a drastic oversimplification, but you get uh, you probably get the point. But you find the same thing in Judaism and in Christianity, etc. There are always, uh, and this goes to the uh, back to the question that I was raising. On the one hand, you, you can practice through devotion and other forms of practice in which you. Trust very deeply your teacher or the Word of God or Allah or whatever. And then there are others which are about self exploration, which your path is one of exploration. And I think these have always been the case. But the question that I faced back in the early 90s is because of the challenges that I encountered in my own practice, the traditional path of practice, the traditional doors, were all close to me, uh, and really closed. And so I was forced by circumstances to explore uh, and and find my own path among all of the teachings and instruction that I received. And by that point, I practiced enough to know that the traditional teachings worked, but I also knew that whenever I practiced them, I just got horribly ill, uh, and there was nothing I could do about it. And so I, I was forced to abandoned a path which I knew worked, but just didn't work for me, and find my own. It was very painful, very, very painful process. And one of the questions that I had at that time is, what happened to other people and other generations for whom the traditional path didn't work, the traditional system didn't work? And I realized that their form of practice and what they did was never passed down. It died out in each generation. And so it had to be reinvented in each generation by the people who found themselves in that position. And so in the source...
0: I'm thinking of Gendon Chöpel.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and so in a certain sense, with Unfettered Mind, I decided to be the person that was going to pass on what I had learned from my own struggles and help other people find their path. I was never really concerned with passing on the traditional path because I couldn't. But I, I, I could devote myself to finding people who are alienated, disillusioned, didn't want to deal with the traditional culture or all of that stuff, and help them through the tools and training and experience that I had, find their own path. And that's, that's really what I've sought to do. And you felt that you were unusual in that? That you were unique? Yes and no. Unusual in that most of my colleagues were much more traditionally oriented, uh, you know, and they were busy building sanders and doing this and having big ceremonies, and et cetera. So I felt very, very alone. Unique? No, I discovered that there is, one, for lack of a better word, an underground of people who were disaffected, who were engaged with very similar questions, who were serious looking for their own ways. And I discovered there's a huge amount of experimentation and exploration uh, going on, which I think is totally appropriate for where things are at the stage in the culture. And when going back to your question, does Buddhism matter? Well, it's going to matter for, it may seem a little tautological, uh, Buddhism is going to matter a great deal to those to whom it matters.
0: Okay, you're helping me actually refine my own question, which is good, because I think... Perhaps what I'm also asking is, can Buddhism provide something that nothing else can to the modern world? No, no, heavens not. And so. I don't mean because of its inherent properties, but I mean because of its particular shape and style and stories. I suppose in in the way that we can relate to them as modern people. For example, I was trained in a different school of Tibetan Buddhism from you, but also every teacher that we had emphasized, underlined many times that the concept of emptiness is extremely difficult and we'll probably never really get it. And yet, time has shown that for Westerners, for modern people in, who face, a, a, they experience much less cultural security and clarity, much more confusion, they're exposed to far many more potential worldviews than, than uh, uh, traditional Tibetan or most traditional Asians ever were, and for whom the concept of emptiness is, is quite easy to move into, that it is not as existentially threatened. And then there's simply the fact that Buddhism does not need to depend upon beliefs. A lot of people do treat Buddhism as a religion, and they do rely on many of its beliefs, but it's also clearly very, very translatable into a secular system, and it's, it's, that's, that seems to be where it's growing the fastest in terms of just plain mindfulness practice. So in that respect, I feel that there may be a case to make for saying that, yes, Buddhism can provide something special, that other spiritual traditions cannot, and that it is filling a very, very special gap or hole in our culture and in our personal needs as well at this time. What do
1: you think about that? I do see things a little differently. Uh, I'm not sure where to start. I should have taken notes on what you just said, and then I would be able to give an organized reply. That Buddhism is a fit for modern culture. Well, again, it depends very much on what you mean by Buddhism. Buddhism is a practice by the layperson in Asia up until very recently would be terrible fit for modern culture the uh, Pure Land schools, uh, particularly they their practice, say, Hawaii, are indistinguishable in form from mainstream Protestant Christianity. Does that make it a good fit, or is that, a, you know, I mean, so is there anything in Buddhism which is particularly uh, special and not to be found elsewhere? I haven't found it. I, uh, I mean, I've studied Buddhism a bit over the years, but I haven't found any truce or principle or some particular methods of practice, possibly, but they, those aren't ones that are easily popularized, that's unique. I, I would agree with you that among the religions that formed in what's called the Axial Age, Buddhism is probably the one that has the least difficulty in adapting itself to modern uh, circumstances. but. You also raised the point about religion as a set of beliefs. Religion as a set of beliefs is a relatively modern and Western phenomenon. It's, it's not how religion was viewed in earlier times anywhere. That, that That's a very modern thing, and it's very much connected with the development of modernism there are certainly people, I mean, you, you go to eSanga, for instance, it says very clearly on eSanga.com that if you don't subscribe to these certain views of karma, et etc., cetera, et cetera, then you don't belong on this site. So there's a group of modern Buddhists who are taking Buddhism as a set of beliefs. And one has to look at this very carefully, because belief in past and future lives and things like that are, you know, crucial to, the, to certain cultures in which Buddhism has existed, and quite independent Buddhism. I mean, they that's the cultural view, and the, the whole way the culture links to itself is based on that. I've been reading a book recently called Pyrrhonism, which is about an early school of Greek philosophy, mm-hmm. in which they suspended judgment about non evidentiary beliefs, which I thought was very interesting. And, and the founder apparently went to India with Alexander the Great and had conversations with Jain teachers and Buddhist teachers and came away very. Profoundly influenced by, it. and uh, it's really, in a certain sense, the basis of uh, of Stephen's agnosticism, Buddhist agnosticism. such a very similar line of thinking, but it's a very particular spiritual path in mm-hmm. which you say those things which I cannot prove or cannot be resolved, I will simply suspend judgment. I won't say they're right and won't say they're wrong. I.e., is the sun Apollo? Well, that's a question that can't be answered. Is there a God? That's a question that can't be answered. Are there past and future life? That's a question that can't be answered. So we just suspend judgment. We won't say it's right. We won't say it's wrong. But that is a very particular way of approaching spiritual and philosophical. It's not for everybody. Most people, when they, people coming into mindfulness, for instance, they're looking for a way to improve their lives. And through that, they may come into a kind of relationship with Buddhism as a religion. Uh, Many people are looking at ways to be more successful. Some people just, you know, a way to get some kind of sanity in their lives. And so we're seeing spiritual tools being brought into everyday life. But this to me is analogous to what uh, happened with uh, herbal treatments. Up until the 19th century, if you were ill, you consulted with a doctor who was usually very knowledgeable and skilled about natural plants and would make concoctions for you which would cure this or cure that. And then they came along and successfully synthesized the acid and so now you had aspirin which meant that millions and millions of people could suddenly have remedy for common headaches and other ailments and things like that. Didn't have to go to the doctor etc. 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 Then millions and millions of people bit away with the whole and change the course of medicine completely. And that's how I see John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness thing. It's, it's a mass distribution of a particular technique.
0: And you see John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness as an effect upon what discipline?
1: It's affecting a lot of people because they can get, in six to eight weeks, they get a way of practicing on a daily basis, which gives them a pocket of recuperation and sanity uh, in their lives and they found it allows them to dissipate a lot of reactivity and it makes their lives better in exactly the same way that taking a couple of aspirin makes your headache go away and i think it's very very good
0: existential
1: satisfaction guaranteed well i wouldn't say existential satisfaction guaranteed it opens up that possibility without being involved in a, in, in a big thing making it a way of life like the way i did so i, I think it's tremendously beneficial. That way. Uh, and he, he used a very, very modern method of dissemination, which is the franchise model. And one of the aspects of the franchise model is that it has to be trainable within five to six weeks. You know, and most forms of Buddhist practice aren't trainable in five to six weeks. No, <laughs> five to six lifetimes. Yeah. So he incorporated very modern techniques from medicine and from business thinking to come up with a system which. Could spread widely, very creative, very helpful, and he gave it away for free. I mean, he could have made a fortune out of it. That he 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 was so inspired by the theme of mindfulness himself that he just wanted to make it available to people. Well, I think he's largely been successful.
0: It's one of the most expensive ways to learn meditation. Most expensive. Well, week for week, yes. It's uh, it's relatively expensive compared with a, a meditation retreat that you would you would find at a conventional Buddhist retreat center.
1: Well, yes. The, I mean, there are whole people building careers out of it, etc. Uh, but, I mean, it's not that expensive. I, mean, I know at Mark at UCLA, it's very, very cheap.
0: I had this conversation with Ted Meissner last week, who was a little upset at the cost of, of MBSR
1: training. Well, are we talking about getting the basic training in a six- to eight-week course? Because then it's up to the individual practitioners providing the training, and some people will be charging a lot, and other people will be charging little, the same as attorneys do. Or are we talking about getting the training to be a trainer? I think maybe that's what he's talking about. And, uh, but this is the way it is. It starts off free, and then people find they can make money out of it. And this is just how the world works. And, and you have to remember, those of us are from the Tibetan tradition. Back right at the beginning of Tibetan tradition, you know, you use empowerments to make money. And yet our teacher, we, we spent,
0: I mean, we actually handed over no money at all. That's are extremely welcoming to us, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and i studied with my teacher for a year. He had had a class in the afternoons for Westerners almost every day, not quite, and you weren't expected, and it wasn't required. It was just some, a service to the monastery, and he provided. Now it's a very different thing. And, and you know very well that I adopted a private practice model in order to be able to teach and function here in the States. And uh, that worked very well because it put me in touch with a kind of people that would never have stepped into a traditional Dharma center. We're, we're seeing all kinds of exploration, all kinds of different forms. And the idea it should be one way, you know, it's just, it should be all these different ways. So. Where do you see
0: all this going? Do, do you see two strands of what has been Buddhism or the Dharma, if you like, the traditional strands having less influence and the, the secular strand developing more influence in some ways in psychology, in what you might call spiritual practice, self-development?
1: You're, you're giving me two strands. I would say the two that you then define the spectrum But that would still be a basically one-dimensional spectrum. But I I don't see it that way. I see it as at least being like a plane or more like a cube where you have so many different things taking place, uh, so many different threads, all interacting and evolving in different ways. I think it's certain kinds of things are going to develop, but those are kinds of things that are developed whenever a new tradition has come into a society, I mean, one of the first things that happens is that when a new tradition comes into a society, it attracts the most brilliant and the most marginal people. That, that's the first thing that happens. And the marginal people fall away. And I, certainly that was the case when I was in the early 70s. And then you had very, very brilliant people who were discontented with their society. And so they were looking for something new. And you know, people like yourself and Stephen Batchelor and many, many others, because they were the ones... That were willing to step out of the society to make contact with it. Over time, more and more people who aren't as extreme as those two groups start to embrace it, and then it becomes part of the society. And then people are looking who are primarily devotional in their approach. They're looking for forms of Buddhism really or ways of practicing which are primarily devotional. Other people are primarily. Based on in insight uh, and, and rational thought, and so, so forth, and you see these strands in Christianity, you see these strands in Judaism. You have all of these things going on, and then you have also the commodification of uh, John Cabots Zen, of mindfulness. Uh, there are several other aspects of Buddhist practice which are probably commodifiable. Uh, there are two or three that I could have commodified myself, except I wasn't. Interested in doing that, but there's a whole bunch of stuff on conflict which could be made into training programs, which would be very, very beneficial. I think mind training, taking and sending, will sooner or later be commodified in some form or another uh, because it's very effective and very susceptible. And I think it'll also be corrupted in the process because that's what happens. And the same thing is true of mindfulness. It is, in a certain sense, become corrupted. And the more it becomes established in the mainstream, the more corrupted it will be. Because mindfulness, as it was practiced in Buddhism originally, was a method of seeing through one's projections. That societies are formed out of accepting a group of projections. And so for a whole society to train in a method, which is going to help them see through projections, that's going to lead to the society falling apart. You see, so one has to see that it's, it's very rare. Just to give you an example, from the time the printing press was developed, it took 200 years before the book evolved. There were a lot of experimentation doing that. And then the book was, you know, so we're, we're now talking about the mid-18th century. And we've had the book from the mid-18th century up, to say, the mid Uh, the late uh, 20th century, that's 250 years, pretty good one. You mean the mass-produced book? The mass-produced book, yeah. Now the internet has come in. Okay, we're in a very strange time period because normally you'd have something introduced, there'd be a couple of hundred years for it to be evolved and be assimilated and used. But now because of the rapid change in technology, you're getting whole new ways of communicating and developing being introduced every 20 years. And so none of these have been assimilated. We haven't got used to email yet. There's still protocols being developed about that. And then you've got Twitter and, and all of these things. Nobody knows how, to, how they're going to use all these technologies, and they're just going to keep changing. Same thing with uh, all these different forms of Buddhism. It's just a big mess right now, and I can't predict how it's going to evolve. I'm not, even, I'm not the least bit concerned with that. Frankly, what I'm concerned with or have been concerned with is helping people find whatever path they're looking to create in their lives. And that's, that's plenty.
0: Now, the question of technology is very interesting because it, it's certainly accelerating. It's giving us the ability to do more things. And yet, clearly, that's not particularly desirable. I mean, I, there was a time when that was highly desirable. When we were growing up, if you recall, most new machines were referred to as labor-saving devices. That term is inconceivable today. These are labor-adding devices. And I wonder what next generations, how they're going to respond to their parents who are still texting at frantic speed and always staying in touch with their social circles. I think that there will probably be a move towards some sort of simplicity. I'm very interested to see how it works.
1: Uh, it's very difficult to say. I just wrote a paper on all of this, by the way. This is uh, I'm drawing from it right now. See, one of the things that isn't talked about much is that as technology, you know, using Moore's law, becomes more and more powerful, uh, and, and so things that were prohibitively expensive in one generation are virtually free in the next. Um, hard disk storage. You remember how much we used to pay for a 20 megabyte hard disk? Oh yeah. And now, what does 20 megabytes storage cost? I mean, you'd laugh if anybody said, Here's 20 megabytes storage, you said, What am I going to use that for? A movie? Wouldn't even cover it. So there, there's that kind of acceleration on the one hand, but also the productivity increases that you get with this rapid change so that people can do so much more than they could. I mean, I can publish a whole newsletter, which I you know would take a whole team of people 40 years ago. What that does. It makes those areas of life in which productivity cannot be increased, it makes them increasingly and sometimes prohibitively expensive. Because, for instance, if you take a Mozart sonata, the time to perform that sonata is the same as it took 200 years ago when Mozart first wrote it. To enjoy it, it takes the same amount of time. In the same amount of time, I can manufacture... 100 million copies of that sonata, which I couldn't have done 200 years ago. So the price of the music goes down, but the cost of enjoying it goes up, relatively speaking. And so what people don't realize is that the cost of spiritual practice, the cost of education, the cost of health care, the cost of all of these things relative to the cost of material goods is steadily increasing. Because you cannot raise productivity in the areas of life in which you find the quality of life. And this is something I think that everybody is ignoring. And to compound it, we're being distracted away from quality of life as well. Exactly. I agree. That's an analysis which was put forward by an economist in the 1960s, a guy called Bommel. He applied it just to health care, but I applied it across the board. Do you know how much it costs an attorney to attend a 10-day retreat in terms of lost income? <laughs> Tell me thirty thousand dollars. And people are saying, you know, three thousand dollars for a ten-day retreat's expensive. Well, that's the attorney. He's already lost thirty thousand. The cost of a retreat is ridiculous, is is the least of his problems. Well, fortunately, we're not all attorneys. Well yeah, doctors, architects, you know, you know, software engineers. Anybody who's self-employed knows very, very well, and more and more people are self-employed, uh, because because the changing economic structure, anybody who's self-employed the actual cost of the retreat is usually negligible compared to the income that they've lost in going to the retreat. That's very true. And yet many people are still doing it, which is good. Which I think is wonderful, because it's far more expensive in those terms to be a renunciate than it used to be. Well,
0: coming up was the easiest thing I ever did. Was the most comfortable and convenient move of all. The the return trip was much more painful. Monday was excruciating. Fitting back into a material world and actually self sufficient.
1: Yeah, for the reasons that I'm describing.
0: Well, I look forward to reading your paper. Where where would listeners uh, to this podcast be able to find that? Well, I don't know.
1: I, I wrote it. I attended this conference on secular Buddhism, but, so this was the. Uh, And afterwards, they said we wanted people to write out their presentations, so I gave a rather unorthodox presentation, we'll say, so I thought I would write out the ideas that were behind it, and that's what this paper was. So it's meant to be published at some point, if it doesn't. I think they're
0: going to set up a website to publish those various papers and and transcripts. Ken, this has been an extremely fruitful conversation, as it usually is when, when you and I get together, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. Is there anything you'd like to
1: add? This is simply my approach, but I think the most important thing in today's world, this connect, connects with some of your comments, you can only develop the ability to listen if you can sit in silence. And I think that's really important. And I mean, listen in all the ways. Listen to yourself, listen to others, listen to the world, etc. And so the ability to be able to sit in silence and listen, I think, is one of the most important things to develop these days.
0: That's a great place to end. Thank you, Ken.
1: You're very welcome. You take care.
0: For more about what you've heard in today's podcast, visit thenakedmonk.com. You'll find an entire web page devoted to this and other podcasts, as well as dozens of provocative blog posts. You can leave comments, chat with other visitors, and email me, Stephen Scottini with your comments and questions. The music on this Naked Monk podcast is The Sound of Viborg by David Kugerman from his CD The Path of the Metal Turtle. The Naked Monk is a labor of love. If you'd like to support our work, you'll find a donate button on the left side of our website, just under the logo. Or if you think there's somewhere you can help the Naked Monk grow, please send me an email. Thanks for listening. See you next time.